Good evening to you all, <clears throat> and uh, thank you for the opportunity to to be here with you. Um, seems like just yesterday we were here uh, for a short visit, and now we're back again. Uh, Lord willing, we hope to be uh, to be able to come back again in not too distant future as we're uh, praying and planning on going to Belize to back to the mission field full time. Uh, sometime in November, so we would appreciate your your prayers for that. We just rolled into town down here the other day. We drove uh, from Canada, so we did. My wife and I we did shift work, and and uh, <clears throat> it may seem like a long distance, but you got to understand in Canada everything is far away, far apart. <laughs> Sometimes you got to drive for a couple hours just to get a cup of coffee, you know. <clears throat> and uh, also, you know, they're just taking their snow tires off right now. Uh, no, actually, we've had a real hot summer, but we we didn't really get to to see much of it because we were over in Ireland on a mission for two months. We were relieving uh, missionaries Garnet and Gwen Cooney, who were in the south of Ireland, and uh, they were <coughs> needing to uh, be back in Canada. So we were there uh, trying to fill in for them with uh, preaching and and Bible studies and visiting and. Uh, discipleship and all the work that goes on there and there's a tremendous need in Ireland uh, I call it the the country of a thousand towns without the gospel because you can literally drive through the country in Ireland and drive through town after town after town where there is literally no evangelical work in some towns I'm told not even any born-again Christians now, you contrast that with what's happening in North America, and we have, like, churches on every street corner, right? And, like, if you talk to any missionaries over in Ireland, they will ask you, where are the missionaries? Where are the missionaries? Uh, sadly, Ireland has been called the graveyard of missionaries because it is so hard and difficult there. Uh, the Coonies have been there for 18 years. Colin um, Burnett... Uh, they've just up the road. Uh, they've been there for 12 years. And they go knocking on doors every week. And like in 18 years, the Coonies have a little work that they've started. And there's just a handful of people. There might be maybe 10 people at the Lord's Supper. So it's really, really, really tough going. Because it's a country that is so religious. Uh, but if you talk to anybody about their personal faith in Christ, they don't have any personal faith. It's just religion. So um, it's a real eye-opener for us. We were, that was our second time going to Ireland. Um, I kind of had to say yes to the Coonies when they asked us because it was Garnet that led me to the Lord <laughs> back in 85. So I didn't really have much of an excuse. So, um, But we, we're um, at that stage in life. Uh, we, our kids are both married now. Our daughter got married since I was here last. And so with both of our kids... Uh, married, we have that uh, time in life where we're we're able to go, and uh, so we have been going to Belize since 2004, and uh, we, uh, with with short-term teams, and uh, there's a tremendous need there as well in Belize, and it's English speaking again, so there's no language barrier. They do speak Creole there, everybody speaks Creole, but you don't need it. Uh, but anyways, in, in Belize, there's a tremendous need for teaching. Uh, they haven't had um, a missionary there in many years. There are other uh, groups there, obviously, and some of them are doing a good work. But the assemblies are struggling. They're really struggling. Some of them, they're down to a handful of people. One of them, there were six people in the meeting when we went there on a Sunday. Um, so anyways, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to share more with you about that as we transition back to the mission field and, and maybe do a pit stop here. Okay, we'll stop in for a coffee or something. And <clears throat> no, there's a little bit more that we want to do. So um, with the time that I have with you tonight, uh, and I see the clock is, uh, I see the clock there on the wall. I have to be uh, mindful of that. <clears throat> I want to share with you uh, a missionary message. Okay. And I want to um, look at a character in the Bible as a missionary. 
And I want to see what we can learn and what we can glean from a little snapshot of his missionary work. The character that I'm thinking about is the Apostle Paul. Now, I don't know if you've ever um, endeavored to study him as a character. I, I was kind of enjoying this recently, but I thought, well, where do you begin, you know? As a character in the Bible, he's just loomed so large uh, that you, you hardly know where to begin, you know? Did you know that one-third of your New Testament is either written about or by the Apostle Paul? One-third of your New Testament is either written about or by the Apostle Paul. Um, he was born in Tarsus, so that's modern-day Turkey, but he didn't stay there long. Um, is there anybody that's 12, year old, 12 years old in their group tonight? Okay, right back there. Look at that young man, 12 years old. When Paul was about your age, his parents said, right, you're not going to hang around here anymore. You're going off to school. And he said, well, where am I going? He said, you're going to Jerusalem, his dad. Now, Paul was born uh, with the benefits of Roman citizenship. He, he enjoyed that privilege, which was very, very valuable in those days. He was born a Roman citizen. But his Jewish heritage was much more important to him. And so his parents sat him down and said, right, you're going to private school and you are going to learn from probably the most famous uh, rabbi in all of Jewish history, Gamaliel. And Acts 5 says that he, he was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. You remember Christ was about 12 years old when he was found at the temple talking with the doctors of the law. And so Paul at a very young age was instilled with this Jewish faith. And he was very, very serious about his faith. Uh, later in, in Philippians 3, he would say that he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. <laughs> I mean, he was hardcore in his faith as, uh, as a Jew. Now, Scholars tell us that he was born right around the same time as Christ and that he died in A.D. 64, give or take a year. They're not exactly sure, but that it gives you kind of the framework of his life. And uh, I think it was um, T. Ernest Wilson who suggests that Paul's life is divided up into four parts. The first part is... Uh, his early life as a Pharisee until he was about 34. And uh, you, can, you can read about that in the New Testament. And he, he, uh, he started to persecute the church because he looked at the church as being kind of like a cult and it needed to be stamped out and put out. It was heresy. And uh, we don't have time to go into his conversion, but that is, a, is a, an earth-shattering conversion. The conversion of the Apostle Paul has had more of an impact upon the history of the world than probably any other conversion in history. Um, there's so much more that we could say uh, uh, about him, but I just wanted to touch on these four points. His early life as a Pharisee. Then for ten years, you have his, his uh, early years as a Christian in preparation for the work that God had given him to do. And we'll, we'll mention something about that. And then you have 10 years as a pioneer. And that's what we want to focus on tonight. Paul, the pioneer. About 10 years in that one life, he left all over the Mediterranean world little assemblies of God's people all over the place because of his uh, work as a missionary. And then the last 10 years of his life is Paul, the prisoner. And so for the last 10 years of his life, he spent much of that time in prison. And it was, some of it was the most fruitful time uh, of his life. What a headache the Apostle Paul must have been to the devil. <laughs> and probably one of the worst mistakes that the devil ever made was to put him in prison. Do you know that from prison came uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon? And they've been plaguing the devil ever since. So it was a big mistake to put Paul in prison. In prison, so there's Paul's life in in just a, a brief sketch as a Pharisee, thirty uh, some years, and then uh, in preparation, ten years, then as a pioneer, ten years, and then as a prisoner. 
We should mention something about Paul in, in preparation. Did you ever notice that anybody whose life is used by God in any measure usually goes through a period of time of obscurity and of preparation and often testing? I mean, look at the Lord Jesus himself. There is that time from he was 12 years old until he was about 30 years old. We don't have any information. They are kind of like the hidden years where he grew up before the Lord as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. But God was, was, uh, was watching him. And if you look at most of the great um, lives that have counted for God, there's always been this period of time where there is a, a period of obscurity a time when God is able to work into that life, the character and the, the gift that he wants to use. And you know what? We're often in a hurry. In, we're in a rush, aren't we? I know I was. Right when I came out of Bible school, I was like, that's it. I want to go. I'm going to go and we're going to take the world by storm. And a brother came to me. You know him, Gary McBride. Gary McBride. He took me aside and he said, uh, Sean, you've got to get a job. It was like the most discouraging thing I could think of. He said, you got to get a job. Do you know it wasn't for 10 years? It was 10 years from then until we actually went to the mission field. There's actually a period of time where you have to allow God to work into your life the salvation that you're going to preach. And it's often uh, difficult, but it's so important. And I think this is worth noting that, you know, we often have a lot of people that just want to go from high school and then just rush off into a career of of missionary work without any period of time where God is able to work into their life and they're able to learn and to grow. Um, Look at the Apostle Paul when he was saved. You know what happened? He went into the Arabian desert for three years. (laughs) Off for three years. And God was working on him. And as someone has said, He went into the desert with the Torah in his rucksack and came back with Romans in his heart. (laughs) God was able to work into him some of the great truths that he would preach and write. There was those years of preparation. So I think that's worth noting. And then Paul the pioneer and then Paul the prisoner. So let's look at Paul the pioneer for a few moments. And we're going to do it from Acts chapter 16. Right in the thick of it. Paul... uh, working as a missionary. So Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. And we're going to just focus on this chapter as kind of a snapshot into Paul the pioneer, the missionary. And just kind of make some observations about his life as a missionary. So let's begin in verse 6. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Um, Now, go down to verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city, that is uh, Philippi, to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who met there, the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us, She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And now from uh, verse 16 down, we don't have time to read it, but there is a Uh, an anonymous slave girl and she's possessed by an evil spirit and people are actually making money off of her. They're using her uh, to make money. 
because she has these special powers to tell the future. And uh, she was trying to give free advertising to the missionary endeavor. She said, these people are preaching the, the salvation of God. <clears throat> and, of course, Paul didn't want that type of advertising. And so he cast out this evil spirit from this girl, and she was delivered. She was completely delivered. And you'd think the people would be happy and call everyone together and celebrate. But you know what? They weren't happy at all. You know why? Because the gospel upset the local economy. <laughs> As someone has said, when he exercised the evil spirit, he also exercised the local economy. So they couldn't make any more money from her. The gospel came with power to these people. And look what happens uh, in verse 22. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. When they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. It's quite dramatic. He was about to commit suicide. And of course, you know, being a Roman jailer at that time, if you lost your prisoners, that's it. You're, you'd, you'd lose your head. So verse 28, Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm if we were all here. Well, that's one of the miracles in the story right there. You know, like, I mean, these guys, they're, they're, the prison doors are open. You ever seen prisoners hang around when the prison doors open? No. We're all here, he says. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Good question, eh? That is the most important question that you will ever ask yourself. What must I do to be saved? And of course, the answer, verse 31. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. That's why his household got saved, by the way, is because they believed as well. So this is a tremendous chapter. And uh, this is right in the thick of missionary work by one of the greatest missionaries. And what an example he is to us. It revolves around the conversion of three people. You have a businesswoman named Lydia. And it says that the Lord opened her heart. So it's a businesswoman with an opened heart. Then you have this anonymous slave girl. And she is delivered. Now, Luke doesn't say she got saved in so many words. I think she... Why, why would he include it if she didn't get saved? I think she was saved. She's delivered of this spirit. So she's a, a, a woman with... A girl with a possessed heart. And then you have the Roman jailer. I used to always focus on him like that was the story for me. But I realized that Luke is giving us all three of these for, for a reason. The, the jailer is a man with a hard heart. But what Luke is showing us is that the power of the gospel is such that it can take people from, that are so different. Look at any category you want with these three people. Economically, socially, racially, gender. Whatever category you want, the gospel cuts right through those barriers. And it has the power to change people. We're going to get to that. I'm ahead of myself. So let's make some observations about Paul, the missionary. That's all I want to do is just look at some observations, not so much about the gospel, but about the vessel that holds the gospel, the Apostle Paul as a missionary. The first observation in this chapter that I want us to get tonight is that the Apostle Paul was spiritual. What, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it is clearly set forth in this chapter that he was spirit-led. 
I think that's a good starting point for missions, don't you? (laughs) After all, isn't the Holy Spirit the CEO of missions? (laughs) I mean, if we want to be involved in missions, we should be in tune with the Holy Spirit. And this is one of the great turning points of history, actually, in this chapter, when Paul wants to go east. He's got plans to go east. And you know what it says twice? It says that the Spirit forbid them. Now, I don't know how he did that. I don't fully understand this. Uh, and there's also a vision that, 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 is, that comes up, and I, I don't, I'm not going to get into all the details of how that all works, but I'm, I'm going to make this observation, folks, that this, the Apostle Paul as a missionary was led by the Spirit. He didn't go east. He went west. The Spirit said, you're going to go west. And you, think about how different history might have looked if Paul didn't go west. This is a record of the very first gospel seeds landing on European soil. And, of course, the rest is history, folks. Think about how, as somebody said, big doors turn on very small hinges. This is a hinge of history, the gospel going to Europe instead of going east. Why? Because Paul, as a missionary, was sensitive to the Holy Spirit. So I think that's a great starting point for us in whatever missions we're involved with, whether it's across the street or across the world. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be led by the Spirit. We need the fruit of the Spirit because that's what missions requires. It's a a movement of God's Spirit. (laughs) And this is what I see in the Apostle Paul. And of course, he would later, wouldn't he, he would later develop some of these great themes he would write about the gifts of the spirit first corinthians 12 he would write about the indwelling of the spirit he would write about the filling of the spirit the fruit of the spirit and so on and uh so it's it's uh it's so important isn't it um you know somebody once uh talking to d.l moody he was the billy graham of the 19th century and he was uh, <clears throat> preaching, and he seemed to always say to Christians, be filled with the Spirit. We've got to be filled with the Spirit. And so this person came up to him afterwards and said, Moody, why do you keep talking about being filled with the Spirit so much? You know what his reply was? Because I leak. <laughs> because I leak. <laughs> and you know what? As human beings, we do leak. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit continually to be filled with the Spirit. So... Uh, he's a great example. We need the Holy Spirit in every aspect, but especially for missions. He's, he's our guide. He's our counselor. He's our comforter. He equips. He empowers. And he's the one who, who's imp- going, working through the missionary in order to reach this world for Christ. I don't know if you ever heard the story about the, uh, the guy learning to uh, fly a helicopter. And he was down in Australia. And uh, he was uh, <clears throat> waiting for his instructor. And so this guy jumped into the helicopter beside him. And he said, right, okay, take her up. So he took the helicopter up, and away they went. And he said, I want you to go right over there. And, of course, at this time, there was this great big forest fire raging in Australia. So he was kind of worried. I wonder why he wants me to go down over there. So he flies over towards it. Then the guy says, okay, I want you to swoop down right over there and, and like right close to the flames. And so the, the helicopter student is saying, well, excuse me, but why do you want me to fly down over those flames? And he says, because I want to get some pictures. He says, I'm a journalist. He says, you mean you're not my instructor? You see, he thought that he was his instructor and he was in serious trouble. Uh, without his instructor. You know what? That's what we need. We need someone beside us, in us, empowering us to do the work of mission. So this is the first uh, observation that I make of the Apostle Paul is he was spiritual. He was spirit-led. And um, there's so much more we should say about that. But let's look at the second thing. The second observation that I make from this uh, account is that he was evangelical. He was committed to the gospel. (laughs) And again, I think that this needs to be emphasized today. He was committed to the gospel. Did you notice um, verse 10? 
Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. (laughs) Concluding that the Lord had called us, what? To set up universities? That's good. What? To set up hospitals? They're excellent. And believe me, in this part of my message here, I'm not trying to be negative to other enterprises. But what I'm trying to glean from the Apostle Paul as a missionary is something that's so important, and that is he was committed to the gospel. Um, It says here, we concluded that the Lord called us to preach the gospel, to announce the good tidings. Um, We also read uh, in verse 30, what must I do to be saved? And then 31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So we hear these words, gospel, preach, believe, saved. This is what Paul was doing, is he was preaching the gospel. And you know what? That's what missions is about. It's about preaching the gospel. We should be committed to the gospel. We mentioned that the gospel is universal in its application. We saw that these people were so different. They came from all kinds of different... I mean, just have a look at us as Christians. Isn't it amazing? You know, some of us would never know each other. We'd never hang out with each other if it wasn't that we got saved by the grace of God. But that's what the gospel does. Now think about the power of the gospel. It took these people so different from different backgrounds. And you know what it did? It made them one in Christ. That is the unifying power of the gospel that we preach. I want you to notice as well uh, the uncomplicated message of the gospel. It's simple. There was a simple question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's a simple question, isn't it? With a simple answer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do you know that the gospel is basically simple? And that even somebody that's young, my daughter got saved at four years old. (laughs) Praise the Lord for the person that, that led her to the Lord. Actually, it was Garnet Cooney's daughter that did. She was four years old. I mean, she grew up hearing about it, but she learned that she was a sinner and that she wasn't going to heaven. And it troubled her. And she needed to know how to get to heaven. And basically, it's not a complicated message. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He didn't say, I am a maze, try and get through, or I am a puzzle, you know, figure me out. He said, I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall he shall be saved. So it's basically simple. Um, it's a simple message. You know, I'm thinking of um, Jan Darby once when he was preaching many years ago in Ireland. He put more miles on his horse than I have air miles, okay? <laughs> and he went preaching all over Ireland. And there's a story told about a visit that he made to this lady. And her son was a little shepherd boy, again, about 11 or 12 years old, but he was very, very ill. And Jan Darby went all over these parts preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with all these people, but he became quite concerned about this little boy. And so he went and he talked to the little boy about salvation. And he said to him five words, The Lord is my shepherd when he came to the word my he actually gripped his finger he said that's that's what it is the lord is my shepherd he's mine it's a personal relationship right five words the lord is my shepherd and so he said to him you know i could say the lord is a shepherd or the lord is the shepherd he is but you see when you actually trust christ to take you to heaven, that's the good news, is that he took our place. Then you make him his. You make him yours. Sorry. And so you actually receive him. The Lord is my shepherd. So you know what? Darby uh, went away from there, and he came back sometime later because he was concerned about this little boy. And he went in to visit this lady, and you know what? Sadly, the little boy passed. He died. But you know what the mom mom said? She said, and this is a true story, she said that when she went in and found her son dead, he was like this in his bed. (laughs) 
he was holding his finger. You see, he didn't know a lot of theology. He didn't know a lot of things. But I tell you what, he understood the simple nature of the gospel. And this is the message that the Apostle Paul was committed to, the gospel. And think about the power where it could take these people. Lydia, she was an intellectual, I think. She was a businesswoman. She was, and it says she was attentive to the things that were spoken of Paul. She was listening, and she had an intellectual thirst and a need. It says she worshipped God. So she had a knowledge of the one true God. She wasn't born again yet. But I think that there was a need there. Now take the, 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 the young girl that was, was uh, demon-possessed. Well, she didn't have her faculties. Now how about the Roman jailer? Well, he was as hard as they come. He wasn't upper class. He wasn't lower class. He was middle class, blue collar worker, but he was rough. I remember working in construction, and I want to tell you, it was rough. And then I became a nurse, and I worked on a nursing station. I thought it would get better. No, it didn't. (laughs) I'm sorry. It didn't get better at all. And it was was rough at times working with with the ladies. But guess what? The gospel is powerful that it can change a person. Did you notice something in each one of these accounts of these conversions? With Lydia, now not with the slave girl because she couldn't, but with the jailer as well, you know what happened? Right after they were saved, what did they do? They began to minister to others. So Lydia, it says, when God opened her heart, she opened her home. She said, Come on over for tea. Of course, that would be the thing to do in Ireland. <laughs> Come on over for tea. You know what there was? There was a, an unselfish nature to the gospel, what it would do to a person. The jailer as well. You know what he did? He took out a first aid kit. He said, you guys are in bad shape. You've been beaten and you're all bloodied and beaten up. You know what he did? He got down and he began to wash their stripes. What does that to a man? What does that to a man? Not religion. The gospel can change people from being basically selfish to being generous-spirited, open, reaching out and thinking of others. To me, that is part of the power of the gospel in this story. He took people, God took people who are basically selfish and he turned them inside out with the gospel. All that excites me. I love seeing the gospel change people. Because it's the only power that can. So he was spiritual. He was evangelical. He was committed to the gospel. Here's another observation. He was personal. As a missionary, he was a team worker. I like this about Paul. Read his, his activity as a missionary and you will see a person that is constantly including people, working with people. It's all about people. Read his letters, Romans 16, the end of the letter. It's basically a chapter of names. (laughs) And all through, it's just people, people, people. He was a team worker. I don't know if you noticed. Uh, Look at verse 16. You remember Luke is writing. Luke is writing. And he says, now it happened as we went to prayer. Now you might say this. You know, this little word, we, you might not have realized this, but this is one of the we sections of the book of Acts. Let me explain. Luke, as a historian, he is giving the account of what's happening. They went there, they did this, this happened, and so on. But when you get to verse 16, you know what? Luke is with them. He's joined the team. <laughs> he, Luke is now part of the team. He says we, we're, he's actually with them. So he's actually writing from, from a first-hand uh, position. He's, he's saying, we. Now, we went to prayer. We went here. We went there. The personal pronoun changes. And uh, what it tells me is that he has included Luke. He is a team worker. He's committed to being uh, part of a team. You know, that's why I like short-term missions. How many here have been on a short-term mission? Please raise your hand. Oh, lots of you. Fantastic. Now, you, you'll know uh, from being on a short-term team that one of the blessings, one of the tremendous challenges is 
having to work as a team when you're, when you're at your target for your mission. And it means having to be flexible and working with people in close quarters and you've got to get along. You know, we were down in Belize uh, since we were here last time and we were with Tim Hood. Now, there's something you want to go on a team with, with somebody excited about the gospel. I call Tim Hood a, a gospel tornado. <laughs> and he's just, and you know, it's, it's great. He's great because the gospel isn't a button that he turns on when he gets on the plane and goes on a mission. No, 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 no. That's 24-7 with Tim Hood. He's just, he just lives and sleeps and breathes the gospel. I look for an off button on him or a pause button. There isn't one. <laughs> Anybody here who knows Tim Hood knows what I'm talking about. There is no pause button. There is no off button for him. I looked. But what, what, what the blessing was, was we were together with uh, 10 of us down in Belize in close quarters. And it was just, we were just 24-7 the gospel. And it was a challenge. We had Gaston. He's a retired guy, worked for Ontario Hydro for all his life. And he's doing all kinds of short-term missions now. And he says, Sean, he says, it's real simple. He says, I just have two requirements on when I go on a mission trip, I said, that's good, just two? He said, yeah, I need hot shower and no snoring. No snoring in my room where I sleep. I said, okay, well, we'll see what we can do. Well, first count, we didn't have any hot shower. We had four bathrooms, not one single hot shower, because you don't need one. By the time you get out of the shower, you're sweating again already. <laughs> and how about the snoring? Well, he, we, we, at first, he was in the room with Tim Hood. He snores like a freight train. <laughs> So two counts. Well, there's two strikes, you know. But, I mean, that's what missions is about is you've you got to be part of a team, right? Now, again, Paul would write and develop these themes later on when he would write about being a member of the body, right? First Corinthians 12, we're all members of one body. And that's what you need to get when you become a Christian, especially if you're going to get into missions, is that you, you're part of a team, right? And so he was committed to teamwork. Now, here's a... Another side point. When you do that, it opens up the potential for conflict. <laughs> now, conflict is inevitable, but it's how we handle it, right? Those of us who are married, right? Everyone has conflict, but it's how we handle it. Now, the Apostle Paul, because he had so many people on his team, it sometimes created friction. And the case in point is Barnabas and Mark, right? Little John Mark. Barnabas says, hey, I've got this guy. He wants to join the team. He's filled out the application. Let's go. Paul said, no, 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 no. Do you remember the last time he was on the team with us? He didn't even make it. So halfway through, he quit and he went home. I think he went home to mom. <laughs> he was not impressed with John Mark. He said, no, we're not taking him. And you know what happened? There was a, there was a missionary war, a fight broke out. And it says that the contention was so sharp between Paul and Barnabas that they parted ways. Isn't that sad? That is a blemish on the missionary uh, story in the book of Acts. But tell you what, when you submit yourself to being part of a team, it requires that you work uh, with others and you're committed to teamwork. Very, very important. Now, the next observation I want to make, I'll work through these quickly. I've got two more. So first of all, he was spiritual, right? He was spirit-led. And then he was evangelical. He was committed to the gospel. And then he was personal. He was uh, a team worker. Now, the next point that I want to make is he was dispensational. You say, what? <laughs> he was dispensational. Now, you're going to say, yikes, that word is too big for me. I need a wheelbarrow to carry it. Yeah. It simply means... That Paul, as he worked, he was, he was committed to the church and he was planting assemblies. Now, dispensationalism has fallen on hard times. Dispensationalism is summed up in this, that there is a distinction between Israel and the church. And that Israel right now has been set aside temporarily. And in this age, the church age, the age of grace, we call it, what God is doing on this earth is he's calling out of Jews and Gentiles a people for his name, the bride of Christ, the church. And Paul was committed to that. Look at the last verse of the chapter. Just so that you know, I'm not grasping at straws here. Look at the last verse of the chapter. 
So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. Isn't that beautiful? Now, she was a businesswoman. She probably had the means to do this. But what happened was they said, well, let, why do we, we don't need to go to the river and pray. Lydia has a nice big living room. Let's have a home meeting. And that's what they did. They went over there and they entered house, the house of Lydia. And that, folks, is the embryo of the church at Philippi. So fast forward 10 years, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, to the saints which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. That's a local church right there. And so th- what was Paul doing? I say he was dispensational because Paul was planting churches. His work, his ministry was in church planting. It was in gospel work. And everywhere he went, he left behind him local churches. He recognized that this is God's work in our world today. And I mention this because uh, Reformed theology, replacement theology is on the rise. It's growing everywhere. And I'm not here to bash other uh, schools of theology. Uh, There are many good and godly scholars that uh, subscribe to those views. But I want to just say that Paul was dispensational. By the way, the word's in the Bible. It's in Ephesians chapter 3. And basically the body of truth in the New Testament on the church was given to Paul. (laughs) The mystery doctrine of the church, Jew, made up of Jew and Gentile, was given to Paul. And he expounds all of the church truth, its organization, its government, its discipline, and so on. So, I think that we are fully justified in observing that Paul was dispensational. He was committed to the church. He wasn't a kingdom worker. <laughs> Jesus Christ was building his church, and Paul wanted to be in line with what the risen Christ was doing. Now we know there is a kingdom coming and this is where I'll move on to the next point. I don't, I don't want to labor on that point very much. The last point I want you to see in this chapter, as a missionary, he was indomitable. That is, he did not give up. He was as tenacious as they come. He ran into so many troubles and trials, I think the average person would have given up. He was, read the catalog of his sufferings. He was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He was whipped. He suffered uh, being thrown in prison, betrayed, misunderstood. Uh, if there's anything, Paul experienced it. It wasn't, it wasn't um, theoretical for him. He went through it. And he, was, he would not give up. Notice, just ever so briefly, verse 25. Verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. To me, that's one of the miracles of the story as well. Can you imagine if you're thrown into solitary confinement? You're thrown into prison. You're shackled and beaten. What would you do? (laughs) I know what I would do. I don't think it would be singing hymns. (laughs) They're singing and praising God. And you know what it says? Look at the next phrase. And the prisoners were listening to them. The prisoners were listening to them. Folks, the world is always listening and watching. Amen? Always. They're watching to the way that you react to trials and tribulations. And he would later write, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, rejoice. He did not let his circumstances dictate his attitude. And you know what? That, to me is half of missions right there. If you can go with an attitude, Lord, I'm going, not because, uh, not because I want to, not because it's going to be great, but Lord, I'm going because you have called me. And then, when you fall into the, the slew pond of, of discouragement and you get into troubles, you know what you can do? You can fall back on the Lord and on His call. And so when you come to the end, in Second Timothy chapter 4, you know what Paul could say? I have finished. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I didn't give up. I kept going. I kept running. I didn't stop when things got rough. And folks, they do, don't they? You don't have to be a missionary to, 
to go through trials and tribulations. There's people here right now, I'm sure. You're going through things that are severe trials and hardships that are, are testing your faith like gold, burning away the dross, burning away the, the impurities. And it's not easy. And what does Paul tell us as a missionary? Don't stop. Don't give up. Don't keep going. Keep keep running. I'll tell you two stories and I'm done. Coming down south, you know, somebody asked me tonight, why do you come down south when it's so hot? <laughs> it makes more sense in the winter, right? Like all the snowbird Canadians that come down, right? Well, there's a lot of Canadian birds that come down. They're called Canadian geese, right? Now, some people like them, some people don't because they leave behind a lot of fertilization. But they're beautiful birds. They, they, they're um, monogamous. They mate for life. If one bird falls out of the sky, another bird will stay with it until it's well enough to go back. Invariably. And these birds fly in formation. Have you ever seen them? Canada geese? Do you see them down? I don't know if they... You've you got to see them, right? Canada geese, they fly in this V. Huge V. Sometimes you can see hundreds of birds and they fly in this V. And there's a lead bird. It's got to be harder flying like that. They fly in a V because it's something like 27% more efficient to fly through the air in that formation. It's got something to do with aerodynamics and stuff. But the lead bird, is they change up every now and then. But here's the thing. Bird watchers tell us, and you can, if you watch them, you can hear them. And what are they doing? They're honking. They're always chattering and honking at each other. And what we know from these birds is, you know what they're doing? They're encouraging one another. They're saying, honk, honk, keep going, don't stop, keep flying. we got 5,000 kilometers to go. Yeah, not miles. We're from Canada, remember? you got 5,000 kilometers to go, honk, honk, keep going, keep flying. And that's what the Apostle Paul does to us. By the way, the leaders, they got it a little bit harder, and they switch up every now and then. You know what that tells me? When's the last time I encouraged the leaders, the spiritual leaders in the flock? You know, being in the oversight has got to be one of the most thankless jobs you can ever have. How often does somebody come up to them and say, thank you for what you're doing. It must be so hard. And I just want to encourage you. Honk. <laughs> How often do they get a phone call just saying, hey, thinking about you and praying about you? How often does an elder have somebody come alongside and minister to them? I think Paul is a tremendous example to us. Honk, honk, keep going, don't give up, keep going. That's what Paul tells me as a missionary. And I'm telling you, if you go, you will be tested to give up. Here's the final story I want to share with you. It happened in your country, in Boston, at the marathon. You know the famous bombing there at the Boston Marathon. Do you remember that? I remember watching it on the news afterwards, and I saw right as the bomb went off, there was that old guy right near the finishing line. Do you remember him? They showed it in slow motion. The moment that that pot bomb blew up, and you could see the explosion, the, the, the what do they call that? The, pardon me? Shockwave, yes. Right outside, and it, and it, it affected the people. And there's the guy. His name is Bill Ifrig, 78 years old. I don't know how many marathons he's been in. 78 years old, and he's running this marathon, and all of a sudden, bam, this bomb goes off beside him. And in slow motion, you could see it. He just melted into the pavement. He just, he just collapsed. I mean, the guy just collapsed. He said later, he said, I could feel my knees just went right out from under me. And he just basically melted into the pavement. Well, people rushed over to help him. They rushed over to help him, and he put his hand up and said, Don't touch me. <laughs> because basically the moment that somebody touched him and helped him, he would be disqualified, right? He just lay there for a while. And then you know what he did? He was 15 feet from the finishing line. 15 feet. He got up, and he crossed that finish line. Somebody brought a wheelchair. He rejected it, and he walked something like seven or eight blocks to his hotel room. <laughs> his daughters tried to convince him to take the wheelchair. 
I thought, that's tremendous. Tremendous. And with you and I, there are things that happen. It might not be jail, it might not be a beating, but there's things, explosions, things that happen in our Christian life that will seek to blow you off course, to take you out of the race, to make you give up. You can't do that. You can't. If, if, you're, if, if you want to be working for God, you've got to make that decision in your heart and mind that you are going to keep going no matter what happens. And um, so the Apostle Paul, I think, is a tremendous example uh, to us. I thought as I was studying the Apostle Paul, and yikes, I didn't, I didn't notice the clock. <laughs> We're done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, tonight, Lord, for the example of one of your great servants, Lord, one who could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, Lord, I pray for each one here. I pray, Father, from, from the very least to, the, to the, <clears throat> the oldest of your saints, Lord. And I pray that if there's someone here tonight that still hasn't answered that question, what must I do to be saved? Lord, I pray that tonight might be the night that they would put their trust in you. Help them, Lord, and pray that they wouldn't even be able to sleep tonight until they have that assurance of going to heaven. So, Lord, we thank you for the the gospel that we have, and we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to treat it as a precious treasure that uh, needs to be dispensed, Lord, and and shared uh, far and wide. And so we thank you, Lord, uh, for the great work that you are doing in this world, and we thank you, Lord, for the, the privilege of being ambassadors for Christ. And I pray for each one of your dear people here tonight, Lord, that you will help them to go on to not give up, but to be encouraged and and to uh, whatever it is, Lord, that is seeking to throw them off course, that they will take it, uh, cast all their care upon you, for you care for them. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you again for the privilege of prayer and just pray that you bless each one as we part tonight. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus, amen. Amen.